Welcome to Stories from the Field podcast, the podcast where we talk to working political scientists about how we know what we know and what field research looks like on the ground. I'm Peter Kraus, Associate Professor of Political Science at Boston College and Research Affiliate in the MIT Security Studies Program. And I'm joined by my excellent co-host, Ora Sekely, Associate Professor of Political Science at Clark University and Director of the Program in Peace and Conflict Studies. How are you doing, Ora? I'm good. How are you, Peter? Doing great. So if you're new to the podcast, in every episode, we talk with working political scientists about some of the most important aspects of doing field research, based on the book we co-edited with the same title, Stories from the Field, A Guide to Navigating Fieldwork in Political Science. On today's episode, we're talking about local knowledge, which is a collection of facts and beliefs and perceptions uh, that people use to interpret the world around them, and in particular, their immediate surroundings. I am really looking forward to today's conversation. I think the importance of local knowledge, it, it's such a key component of field research. But people get there in really different ways in terms of the relationships that we have with the places where we do our research. So some people do research in their own communities. Other people do work in places that they've lived or studied. Uh, and other people get to know the places they study through their research. So let me start by asking you this question, Peter. What does local knowledge mean to you? So first and foremost, I'll say that local knowledge means the difference between information collection and communication. So are you going in the field just to collect information or are you going to actually communicate with the people in that community to learn about their perspectives, their experiences, have a two-way form of learning and knowledge? Secondly, are you kind of just testing your preformed theories in the field, quote unquote? Are you actively going in to inductively develop your theories and arguments and ultimately challenge some of your assumptions? If you're doing the latter, to me, that's developing local knowledge. Thirdly, how are you asking the questions that you're trying to study? So a lot of the time in academia, you know, there's a certain debate or a certain way that a question is framed that when maybe you arrive in the quote unquote field, you realize that's not how people in the community actually talk about this at all or how they perceive it at all. So to the extent that you recognize that and potentially modulate some of your research on those lines, I think you're making use of local knowledge. Fourthly, I would say local knowledge is not just necessarily knowledge. It's also to what extent is your research designed in a way that it doesn't just benefit you personally or the broader field, but also benefits the local community in a broader sense. And I think more and more scholars, thankfully, are thinking more conscientiously about that. And then finally, and just kind of collectively, I would say local knowledge is about fast versus slow field work. You know, fast field work is, okay, I've got my question, I've got my theory, all I need to do is just, you know, fly in, fly out, do my experiment or do my survey, and boom, there's my field work. Versus, are you actually doing field work in a way where it's not always instrumental? You're not always just trying to just talk to this person or just do this experiment. You're actively learning and questioning assumptions and engaging with people in ways that it's not just all about your research. And then it both is not all about your research, but also in the long run, it probably helps your research because you have a much deeper understanding of that community and its people. How would you define local knowledge, Aura? Well, you know, I think in a lot of ways, very similarly to the way that you define it. For me, a lot of the way that I think about the importance of local knowledge in my fieldwork is in how it informs my understanding of my own blind spots and my own ignorance, right? So do we know what we don't know, right? How do you know what you're missing? How do you know which questions you need to ask? And more importantly, do you know which questions the people that you're studying think are important to their lives, right? What are the, the problems and the puzzles and the questions that really shape the lived experience of the people in the communities that you're interested in studying? And then secondarily, do you actually know where to go to find out the answers you're looking for? Having pre-existing connections to the places where you're studying or the places where you're doing research allows you, I think, to have a better sense of how to structure your research and who you need to talk to, who you need to distribute your surveys to, to sort of figure out how to structure your research in a way that you're actually going to get at the answers that you're looking for. In that sense, Wendy's chapter really spoke to me, uh, where she talks about um, the importance of field being or, or what Geertz calls deep hanging out, because that helps lay the foundation for a lot of the answers to those questions of knowing what you don't know, knowing who you need to ask to find out the answers that you don't have, and figuring out which questions actually matter in the first place in the places where you're doing your research. 
I mean, I think that makes sense. I mean, I think what you're pointing to and both of us are talking about building off of Wendy Perlman's chapter is the idea that field work is not kind of this time-bound, space-bound aspect of your broader scholarship where it's like, oh, I'm going to the field for a few weeks or a few months or even a year. That in really, it's it's kind of this long-term career-long engagement with communities that you're studying and that you're learning from. And that that aspect of kind of field being is just kind of, you know, being in general and that that's going to have uh, not only force you to see the world and the places you're studying in a new way, but it's going to have really positive, I think, deep impacts on your research. So a really question I have for you, Or, is, you know, so if we've defined local knowledge, how do you feel like it's really impacted your work in the course of your career? I mean, I think that's a that's a really important question. And I think, you know, it's a question that we maybe ask of comparativists, that is people who do comparative politics more than we do of scholars in other subfields in political science. But I actually think it's important for all of us. For me, my previous experience before I started my PhD, before I even started my master's degree, living and working in the Middle East was what made me want to do political science research in the region in the first place. And the questions that I was interested in came directly out of experiences that I'd had living and working in the region, sort of in my life before academia. More specifically, I think one aspect of my relationship with the Middle East, let's say, that's really shaped my research is about language. So my second book was about the Kurdish national movement, particularly women. It was a co-authored book and it was my chunk of it was on women in the Kurdish national movement. And it was the first time that I'd done research where I really had no, no, like, zero language background uh, with regard to the people that I was interviewing where I absolutely had to use translators because in the past I'd you know I had mostly been interviewing Arabic speakers which is a language that I can use for research and the experience of doing research using interpreters and translators almost exclusively was just it was so different and in some ways gave me a different lens or a different uh, perspective on the questions that I was asking and the the places where I was doing research because I, you know, I was working with interpreters. And I've done that, you know, I've also had research assistants, certainly in other parts of the the Middle East and the Arabic speaking Middle East. But um, I think language and our relationship with the language of the places that we study can really shape how we engage with those questions and those places. So what about you? Yeah, I would say language similarly has had an impact on my work. I mean, we both do research in the Middle East. And I'll say that whether it was uh, using Arabic in a number of Middle Eastern countries in the Levant and otherwise, or trying to use some of my up to high school level French in Algeria when I realized that the Arabic that I spoke was not going to be that valuable in North Africa. I think it taught me certainly a, gave me a big dose of humility because when you're in these PhD programs that are high powered and you're you know preparing to be a scholar of XYZ issue to some extent you're thought like oh okay I have this great understanding of XYZ and I was never cocky about the information that I knew but at the same time you know you're thought to be like oh this great scholar who knows all this stuff and then you go to a foreign country where you know you're working on the language and you're trying to study this issue and you realize very quickly that all the stuff that you read in books some of it's valuable but a lot of it is less valuable than maybe you thought in terms of how it describes the communities that you're living in, in terms of how it presents a perception of the world around you. And so my, you know, experience with gaining local knowledge and living for, you know, a number of years in these various communities was that it certainly changed how I asked my questions, how I did my work. And it showed me the disconnect between how many academics talk about things versus how people in the quote unquote real world, particularly in these communities, talk about stuff. So that certainly had an impact with me. And then the final thing I'll say is that beyond just my research, it's impacted my teaching tremendously because obviously like you, I teach about the Middle East, I teach about political violence and the ability to be able to go and live in these communities and interact with people, not just as interview subjects, but as friends, colleagues, etc., cetera, uh, was invaluable for how I'm able to hopefully teach about these regions and the politics of them to my students and hopefully a new generation, not only of scholars, but of politicians, uh, social workers, members of NGOs, etc. So all that being said, local knowledge, really important. We're really excited to have uh, this episode here today. You know, uh, your point about Arabic in the Levant versus Arabic in North Africa, I think is a really good one because it illustrates exactly the importance of knowing where the gaps are for all of us. Uh, and I think that's a really, uh, that's a really nice example of the ways in which the more you know, maybe the more you realize that you don't know or that we maybe have something to work on. 100%. 
I mean, I think about that diagram, if you've ever seen it, where it's like people who don't know anything don't think they know a lot. And then people who know a little think they know so much. And then people who know a lot realize, no, they don't know that much. So I think sometimes as a grad student, you're maybe at the beginning of that curve for a little bit, taking the greatest works in the field and then having seminars and saying all the bad things about them. But then the second you step out and start doing your own work, you realize, oh yeah, I don't actually know that much and it's time to get to work. My best friend in graduate school was one of these people who's incredibly gifted with languages and she was a fluent French speaker. And she decided she was going to go off and do research in Algeria and knew that she was going to be able to pick up some Arabic. But she asked me ahead of time, like, hey, can you maybe teach me a couple of useful phrases? And of all of the phrases I tried to teach her, the only two that stuck were the Jordanian slang for why aren't you wearing a hat and woe is me, which as it turns out is not terribly useful in Algeria. Maybe that's something that I should have been more aware of. In any case, looking forward to discussing all this with our guests and uh, yeah, hope that everyone will enjoy our discussions of local knowledge. So we're lucky to be joined by three terrific scholars, Christina Greer, Associate Professor of Political Science at Fordham University, Wendy Perlman, Professor of Political Science at Northwestern University, and Paul Staniland, Associate Professor at the University of Chicago. We're going to start by talking with you, Chrissy. Your chapter was titled Conducting 1500 Surveys in New York City with great uncertainty and a limited budget. So what was that like? Can you tell us a little bit about what what it was like conducting 1,500 surveys in New York? So as a graduate student uh, at Columbia University, I wanted to write my dissertation on a comparative analysis of Black Americans, Afro-Caribbeans, and Africans. And most people use the NES or the GSS to find their data sets. But with my research, (laughs) there was no variable that asked for sort of ethnicity. Uh, There was a parent nativity variable, but we also know that the sample sizes of Blacks in the NES and the GSS are so small, uh, I couldn't get any sort of robust, statistically significant data. So I had to create my own data. And it was quite an undertaking for someone who had no money uh, and was running literally against the clock trying to graduate. But it it really highlighted um, some of the inequities that we have in our data sets. Uh, And even the um, National Black Election Study that had been conducted in three iterations asked, you know, you know, hundreds of black Americans about their attitudes and policy positions, but never specifically asked about ethnicity. And so as I was trying to write this dissertation, which turned into my book, Black Ethnics, about the diversity within uh, the black political electorate, Mm -hmm. I found that uh, our data sets actually did not assist very easily uh, in making those those diverse claims. Uh, reality. Interesting. So a question that I have to follow up on that, Christina, is, you know, so you did these surveys in New York City. And if I have it correct, you did your PhD at Columbia in New York City, and now you're teaching at Fordham in New York City. So can you tell us a little bit about what it was like doing field work, where you were doing your PhD, and now where you're teaching? Yeah, I mean, my second day of grad school, 9-11 happened. So there's that, that backdrop. So that was the first time I realized that political science is not the same as politics. So we didn't really discuss 9-11 at all throughout my entire tenure in graduate school in courses. So before I'd gone to grad school, I I did a one-year fellowship called CORO, C-O-R-O. It's a series of nine one-month internships and um, and fellowships throughout the city. Uh, And I happened to do it in New York. And I worked for a labor union, the Social Services Employees Union. I kept in touch with those individuals and the president of the union. And so when I was thinking about how can I sample a diverse group of Black New Yorkers for my for my research, but I didn't want taxi drivers and dentists and doctors and lawyers and teachers and janitors because I, I was afraid that my class controls would overshadow my ethnic distinctions. And so I was able to use the Social Services Employees Union where I could have relative controls for class, even while I was looking at a really diverse Black population. Uh, and so just as luck would have it, I mean, my, my partner uh, was in New York. And so I finished Columbia. I did a fellowship at Smith uh, and then came back to New York at Fordham, which was a great fit because I, I really wanted to teach students who were first generation Americans and also first generation college. And Fordham Lincoln Center, where I am, has a, a pretty large population of both uh, across racial and ethnic groups. And so it, it just kind of worked out. <laughs> so you really feel like there's, a, there's some interconnectedness between where you teach, between your research, that all of that kind of weaves together? 
Yeah. I mean, I always tell people, it's like, there are two things I love in this world. You know, it's like black people and cities. And so New York is a great place to, to get both of those. I think that cities are the variable. Um, I wanted to be an urbanist when I started graduate school, my DGS meeting, you know, the day before classes, I said, I wanted to continue my undergraduate thesis research. I'd done a comparative analysis of crime and public policy in Boston and Baltimore. And the DGS at the time said, well, cities are dead. (laughs) So you have to figure something else out. And for me, that was a shocker because in the early aughts, you know, it's like, well, people of color live in cities, immigrants live in cities, poor people live in cities, wealthy people live in cities. I don't understand how you can say cities are dead. Um, But he essentially said, well, you're not going to, you know, have A, any classes to, to take and B, you won't get a job. So figure out how you can satisfy your interests whilst also completing the degree. So obviously I, I care very deeply about race, racism, um, and, and trying to figure out ways that American politics has, has grappled with America's original sin. And so thinking about diverse black populations and how they negotiate those relationships and policy positions within this very sort of anti-black, white nationalist, <laughs> capitalist nation, some who are voluntary uh, immigrants to America and others who were brought here via U.S. chattel slavery creates to me a set of really interesting questions about how you view this nation and your prospects within it. And so that's why the research and the data, I really wanted to have some controls for class so that I could really get at these ethnic distinctions between first generation, second generation, and then people like me who are, you know, 15th generation American. I, mean, I think that's really well said. And I have a question actually from your, your book chapter to follow up on that. So you wrote in the chapter the following, many of my Caribbean respondents were excited to hear that my paternal grandmother was from the Bahamas. I had not planned on sharing that piece of personal history with my respondents, but almost every Caribbean or African respondent inquired as to whether I was something other than, quote, just black. In many ways, their question confirmed some of the theories of racial solidarity and ethnic distinction that I had dissected in the project. I wondered how forthcoming some of my respondents would have been had I not been able to tell him about my deceased grandmother, who I'd never met, from a country I hadn't visited since I was in elementary school. Still, the family connection was enough to serve as a seal of approval and increase my response rate. Could you tell us a little bit more about how you feel like your family history identity has kind of impacted, it seems like, both your interest in the topic, but also your ability to kind of conduct effective fieldwork in these areas? Yeah, I mean, I, that it was just such a poignant interaction because I, I received that question quite a bit. And as I talk about in the book, there there's sometimes subtle and sometimes not so subtle ethnic hierarchies that that people have within this intra-group Blackness and Black identity. And so Ruel Rogers, who's a professor at Northwestern, who's written a great book about sort of comparing Caribbeans and Black Americans, speaks about his Caribbean identity and and what that meant in doing uh, qualitative field research. And so I didn't want to put that front and center, but I definitely felt like it was sometimes an entree into a conversation uh, with my with my respondents. But it also reminded me not to make assumptions about those relationships. My mentor, who actually, you know, my intro to American politics professor, Jim Glazer, who is uh, still a professor and faculty member at Tufts University, which is my undergraduate institution. Uh, when we talked about my field research when I was an undergrad, we really had some really deep conversations about not making assumptions about uh, shared identities with, you know, your respondents and, and you know, your, you yourself as a researcher. Jim Glazer is a Jewish male who did work in the South and, and the ways that he had to negotiate kind of a racial identity, a religious identity, a Northern versus Southern identity. And so he really helped me sort of lay a foundation to recognize that depending on the circumstance and depending on the question, you know, my racial identity might not be the primary identity. My ethnic identity might not be the primary identity, sometimes region. So, I mean, it was lucky for me that we were all New Yorkers, but I definitely felt like when I was doing field research as an undergrad, you know, me going to Baltimore as someone who went to college in Boston made me more of a foreigner than than anything. And so really always remembering uh, this kind of insider outsider status as a researcher when I when I pose these questions to my my potential respondents. 
I love that New Yorker is still this this overarching bonding identity among groups of people. I think that that also sort of speaks to some of your insights about what it's like to do research in New York as somebody who's teaching at a at a university in the city. I wanted to ask you one more question, which is relates to something else that you wrote in your chapter is that research can serve as a means not only to explore new ideas, but to shed light on communities and populations who are often pushed into the shadows. I want to think a little bit about, or I'd like to ask you to think a little bit about how we can use our research as a way to ensure that all members of a population that you're studying are included. Right. As a, how do we use our research to give voices, to give voice to all members of the population in our studies, and that we don't accidentally push certain groups further to the margins, that we don't accidentally invisibilize some uh, segments of the population we're studying? What advice would you have for researchers along those lines? Well, I think, you know, we really have to look at our discipline more critically. I mean, all through graduate school, you know, whiteness was the baseline. Everything else was other, right, when we're creating dummy variables. You know, white maleness is is sort of the quintessential variable and everything else is, you know, stems from that. And we have to ask ourselves why that is. Why I thought it was so important to do this research, not just because I think Black ethnicity uh, in, in that pr- particular political moment was important. I mean, keep in mind, this is pre-Obama that I was asking these questions. But, you know, when you really step back, when you think about, say, a, a Black woman who's 65 years old, if she's not famous, has anyone ever, has any researcher ever really stopped and said, Tell me about your life. Tell me about your attitudes about mm-hmm. immigration or education or Social Security. How do you feel about things? I mean, we have to remember that so many communities of color are oftentimes ignored when policy is being made. I mean, they, they don't have a seat at the table. And so for me as a researcher who wants to be inclusive, that's thinking seriously about not just uh, race and ethnicity, but, you know, the age of my respondents, um, where they're from, their socioeconomic status. I did a panel that was kind of based on, you know, Black ethnicity uh, with a city council member and his mother to just talk about immigration and their their various sort of migration paths to New York City. And I realized, you know, she was a woman in her, her mid-60s. As I'm asking her questions about her immigration story to the United States, and she, so many times I asked her a question, she said, no one has ever asked me this. Oh, wow. So there's a, a certain invisibility that so many communities of color have, and they have these rich, unique, distinct, slash universal stories at times that could really help researchers, but also just help us with crafting what it means for all of us to be Americans or for all of us to be New Yorkers with this collective identity. And oftentimes, you know, whiteness is the variable. Uh, and that's where it oftentimes begins and ends. You know, when when you read scholarship uh, and they'll have lots of theories and you realize they didn't bother asking any Asian-Americans. Right. It's like white, black, Latino, other. Right. And it's like, wow, we don't want to talk about, you know, the, the fourth largest ethnic group, racial ethnic group in the country. That's that soon will be the third, you know, the largest one of the largest undocumented populations in the country. I mean, there's so many questions that we have the potential to answer. But I think oftentimes if we read our journals, especially the journals that we're expected to publish in to get tenure, they're not asking those questions, nor are they interested in those questions some of the time. And I think that that does a lot of damage to young scholars. I think it does a lot of damage to graduate students who don't join the profession. And I think we do a disservice to populations that really that need to be highlighted so we can better understand policy or this nation when asking those those questions which maybe like represents like a kind of lack of local knowledge, right? Maybe we can think about our discipline being to have better local knowledge as a whole um, when we think about what kind of questions get asked and what kind of research gets published. Right. And what kind of questions are respected Yeah, and what methods are respected. You know, I think the day that our discipline has a reckoning because we're, we're inching towards it, but we're, we're past time for it. Sure. You know, the fact that quantitative research is seen as superior to qualitative by the vast majority of journals, uh, the vast majority of, you know, elite institutions, uh, tenure granting institutions. And so we're replicating, I would argue, a very problematic wheel. uh, And we're pushing people really, really smart, talented, interested and interesting people out of the discipline because we're calcifying these kind of, I would say, antiquated and borderline white nationalist norms mm-hmm. um, that uphold some really old problematic theories about race and ethnicity and gender. 
Well, I think that's really well said, Christina, and we really appreciate you joining us. Uh, we'll actually be back with you and bringing you back on shortly. Uh, we now turn to Wendy Perlman, Professor of Political Science at Northwestern University. Welcome, Wendy. Hi, thanks for having me. We're so happy to have you here. Your chapter in the book was titled On Field Being. Could you tell us a little bit about what field being is to you and how it differs from or complements fieldwork? Yeah, I thought about field being as kind of a less instrumentalized way of going about uh, developing a relationship with a world region or a location, or as we call it, a field. And it occurred to me when you guys invited me to write a chapter for the book that field work is so instrumentalized in a way that I almost found problematic, that we go to an area to extract data to get information implicitly for our own purposes of producing work that we need for our studies, for our careers. And there was something that sort of rubbed me the wrong way about thinking about a field as as work as opposed to a community that you try to get to know, as opposed to a people that you try to appreciate, as opposed to a part of the world with which you try to develop a relationship. And when I thought about my own trajectory as a scholar of the Middle East, that I began my first trip to the Arab world was as a study abroad student. I went back as I continued studying Arabic. I returned to different parts of the region as a student. I interned at human rights organizations. I developed friends and had colleagues and had housemates and roommates and had a whole series of kinds of relationships that I built to this region before I ever even heard the word fieldwork, before I ever thought about fieldwork. And I feel really lucky that I was in many ways able to sort of build what for me has been a base of knowledge I've used throughout my scholarly career before I ever thought about having a scholarly career and got to know a quote unquote field before I ever thought about doing something called field work. So I wrote this essay in a way to try to promote that sort of a point of view or put it on the table that while we all face professional pressures and our students do as well, and there are so many limitations on what people can do as they are scholars trying to get to know a part of the world, that wherever possible to seize these opportunities for less instrumentalized ways of approaching the quote unquote field and to, to encourage our students to do the same. You have this amazing anecdote in your chapter that I think addresses a lot of what, what you're talking about here from the time when you're studying abroad in Morocco. And you write about trying to explain to the nice Moroccan family that you're living with that you're a vegetarian using only the power of mime, which certainly resonated with me because I'm pretty sure I've done exactly the same thing. And so I, I thought this was kind of an amazing story, but I also think it points to a bigger set of questions about how we adapt to, to new places, how we reconcile our own habits and practices with habits and practices in new places where there may be some friction between those two sets of norms and behaviors, and how we can prepare for that friction or for those differences ahead of time. So what are some questions that you think folks should ask themselves or just some, some things we should think about before leaving for field research with regard to how we're going to adapt to being someplace that may in a lot of ways be very different, especially if we're going for the first time? Yeah, such great questions. I can say about my own experience of now 25 plus years in the Middle East as a vegetarian and now a vegan. Luckily, there's actually never been friction. It's kind of funny, but you have learned, or at least I've learned along the way, to give people forewarning that yes. I don't eat meat and Absolutely. find most people that are incredibly gracious. And people often think, oh, will you offend a family if you go and you don't eat meat? On the contrary, for me, it's turned out to be a source of tremendous amount of laughter, a lot of fun and enlightening conversations. And people are usually not offended at all. And in fact, because I'm often visiting families with limited resources, there can even be a kind of a relief that they don't have to present expensive meat that they might not really be able to afford but feel obligated to do for a guest. So that's an aside on vegetarianism. <laughs> You know, I've had exactly the same experience, actually. In some ways, I find the Middle East an easier place to be a vegetarian because there are so many chickpeas. Yeah, absolutely. It's a good place to eat beans, for sure. But the larger question that you extracted from the anecdote is really a terrific one about thinking about adaptations and how to prepare for adaptations. And I think in so many ways, the question is context-specific, and it's about how do you anticipate the unanticipated? And that's a difficult thing to answer, and I think will really vary by project and by fieldwork location and by person and that sort of thing. But I can think of a few things related to sort of a general mindset about how we 
anticipate the unanticipated. And I guess there are a few things here I can think to highlight. One is, and I always think of Leanne Fuji's marvelous essay, Ethics 101, which has so many unbelievable tidbits in, in a line I, I always think of, which is, to enter another's world as a researcher is a privilege, not a right. So I think one thing about thinking about how to adapt is to always remember we're guests entering these spaces and entering other people's social worlds. And the obligation is on us to adapt, not on anyone else to adapt to our preconceived notions or our comfort. And, you know, it's a warning to be sort of hyperattentive to ethics at every turn. And among those ethical sort of duties, I think, is not just the, the duty to, quote unquote, do no harm, but also to always show respect for the people who are generous enough in sharing their time and their lives and their ideas and their minds with us. So I think that's a mindset to go into these new situations of social patterns and practices, as you said. Another thing that comes to mind is to think about this question of adapting to new social situations and settings as not just a challenge or an obstacle, as sort of an impediment that's thrown up in the way of us as we try to gather data, but as opportunities, opportunities for learning, opportunities for discovery, for exploration. That is why we travel to different settings, is to understand those differences, is to be exposed to those differences and to embrace the kind of awareness that these types of situations create for us. So it's an opportunity more than an impediment or challenge, I think is another aspect of the mindset to adapt. A third point on this is this sort of question about, you know, how to prepare for the field. I would say just that it is important to even think about preparing. And here is a message, I think, especially for PhD students, that often a dissertation prospectus is written and reads like the first chapter of a dissertation. It is filled with theory and literature review and diagrams. Oh, I think of my own dissertation prospectus that was had beautiful boxes to arrows to boxes to arrows and, and, and citations many pages long because I needed to review every piece of relevant literature. It was written as a chapter one. I arrived in Israel and the Palestinian territories where I was doing my research, got off the plane and didn't have a clue about what to do. My prospectus didn't prepare me at all for the question of, you get off the plane, what do you concretely do? So I always tell my own graduate students in preparing prospectuses is to think really concretely about that terrifying moment of you have worked so hard to get to this point, to get funding, to pass through the hoops, to find yourself in the field doing field research. What concretely do you do? And think really carefully and coldly about that reality and be ready for it as much as you can. I mean, I think that's fantastic advice. And, you know, it makes me think about the idea of kind of slow versus fast field work. And I think you're right. You learn so much more having the approach that you're detailing. You challenge your assumptions. You maybe create your theory and or figure out how to actually ask your question by kind of gaining that local knowledge. A question I have for you, Wendy, relates to something else that you wrote in your chapter, which builds off of what you just said. You said the following, quote, students conducting field work ought not to look at the time in the field narrowly in terms of gathering data for a specific project, such as a dissertation. Rather, I encourage them to think of it broadly in terms of developing an enduring relationship with a place, language, or topic. In that regard, sometimes it is the episodes in the field that are unplanned or unsought, or perhaps not even understood or appreciated at the time, that prove most valuable as the years pass. The question I have is, how can we effectively encourage students to do this when they're facing mounting pressures of time, money, and publisher parish, even if we agree that this is potentially a preferable approach? This is a great question. And here I really want to piggyback off of some of the terrific things that Chrissy was saying about our discipline. And it's time for the discipline to have a reckoning. And we have to think about what questions are asked and what questions are respected and which aren't, and what methods are respected and which aren't, and what types of knowledge are respected or not. And so one question is how to effectively encourage our students given these types of constraints. Another is to think about all of us as we get more senior in the discipline and others who are more senior than us about how do we change the structure of incentives? How do we reshape the discipline to be one in which people have the opportunity to engage with a region or a location in ways that aren't so instrumental, in which they have the time to really get to know places and people slowly? 
to develop relationships, to hone intellectual insights and instincts, and not simply gather data in order to create a publication quickly. So I think there's a lot of onus on us, given, as you just mentioned, the kinds of constraints on people at other levels of their career. But again, I guess I I would think about this as a kind of an attitude. And for graduate students, just as much as possible, um, wherever they can, to look for these opportunities to learn and to seize them. Remember that not everything in the field is necessarily about data collection narrowly understood. And on the flip side, you know, whatever people can soak up in the field is not irrelevant. You know, when grad students spend days or times or conversations that aren't directly related to the data collection plan they have, that this is not time that is wasted. Nothing is wasted in the field if part of the purpose is to get to know a whole social world different than your your own. It's about insight building more than just data collection. And I think another point here I have not just for graduate students, but thinking about undergraduates. And I mentioned in my essay that I have so many conversations with my own undergraduates as they're graduating and moving on in life that they are interested in maybe going abroad. And they always refer to it as taking time off. And I always say, time off from what? There's some thought of like, well, I'm going to go on to graduate school or I need to find a high powered job. But if I were to try to get somewhere and teach English or work for an NGO or find any kind of job that's just enough to make ends meet, but to be there, that that is time off a high powered professional career track. And it breaks my heart to hear that. And I think that for young people, you really can't go wrong by spending more time in environments different than your own rather than less. And as long as it can be made safe and made affordable, if you can get in sort of enough to get you by, the life learning that is able to take place in those moments is truly invaluable. So it's a way of thinking about how we move along in our careers, but the constraints that you mentioned are are real and I don't in any way want to minimize them. Well, I think that's very well said. I mean, I think you're right. All five people on this call are tenured professors at, you know, research institutions. And so you're right. We have some agency and control. We're the ones who, you know, review articles, who train graduate students, who write tenure letters, et cetera. So I think you're right that even though there are these constraints, we can make a difference in terms of the expectations we have and the types of research and methods that we value. I think that's very well said in terms of our ability to change some of these potentially problematic pressures that have built up over the years, potentially in you know, disadvantageous ways, not only for the communities that we're studying and engaging with, but also for the students and for the broader scholarship. Thank you so much, Wendy Perlman, for joining us. Uh, we're going to bring you back in in just a moment. So now I wanted to introduce Paul Staniland, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Chicago. Welcome, Paul. Uh, thanks, Peter. It's great to be here. So your chapter in the book was titled Fieldwork on Foot, and you reflect on the importance of walking around to acquaint yourself with a new city. Is there a particularly memorable walk you've taken that you might want to share with us? I mean, I can think of a few. I, let me briefly outline three as different like genres. One was I got really lost in Colombo, Sri Lanka. It was my second day there. It was super hot. It was a national holiday. The war was still on. So it wasn't like, you know, it was a big pedestrian. Certain areas of the city were not big pedestrian, you know, thoroughfares. But I was bored and I wanted to go. And I remember one of the people at the guest house was like, we don't really just like go walk it around to the midday sun. It's, you know, hot, whatever. So long story short, I got horribly lost. Like I should have kept going west. I was trying to get to the Pacific Ocean. I accidentally veered due south. So I was running parallel to the ocean while attempting to get to it. Um, It ended up just like completely soaked in sweat and disoriented. And it was it was like, a, oh, right, you really screwed this up kind of moment. Um, so that was very memorable. Another that I think was more substantively or intellectually relevant, there was a I was in um, Srinagar, which is the kind of main city in um, the Kashmir Valley in um, what was then the Indian state of Jammu and Kashmir. And there, it was a shutdown day. So basically, kind of a call had gone out that, you know, there would be a shutdown. And so I just kind of wandered around. And it was this very kind of eerie, interesting feeling where there were, you know, tons of security forces around, barricades, all the rest of it, uh, but very few people on the street. And so I was both very conspicuous, you know, I was like this random white guy wandering around, but it also, so that was, you know, noticeable. But I gave a very clear sense of like one of the dynamics of the conflict, which is there's a massive state security presence. And many of the ways in which members of the local population at this point in the conflict try to show 
resistance or contestation is no longer really using violence because the Indian security forces are just so powerful and, and pervasive that I mean, it still happens. There are militants who mobilize, but they get killed you know, within weeks or months at most. But there are other forms of, of resistance and, and shutdowns had become one of those in that period in the early 2010s. Uh, so it gave a very kind of vivid feel of some of the ways in which this conflict had kind of taken a new direction from the more kind of conventional insurgent, counterinsurgent battles earlier you know, in the 1990s and early 2000s. And a final one is really, it's kind of a, it's a cliche, but it was walking around in Belfast and Northern Ireland and through, I mean, Peter, you know, uh, through these kind of interface areas and these zones of kind of transition from one ethnic or uh, ethno-religious kind of area of concentration to another. And that gave a very visceral feeling for the kind of, you know, political ge- geography of the city. 100%. I mean, you know, one of the stories that I tell in my chapter in the book was walking on the Falls Road, which you know well, and seeing this stone wall where someone had spray painted Boston College touts. And I was like, oh, there's some school spirit on the wall. But of course, as you know, tout means informer and something negative. And obviously, as you know very well, graffiti in Northern Ireland is often political and sometimes violent in nature. So yeah, that was a little bit... Uh, eye-opening, say the least. But your chapter really resonated me in part for that reason, because just physically walking around in these spaces, I think is a great way to kind of gain local knowledge. One of the experiences I often have is, you know, kind of when you're walking around, even in your own city, sometimes your brain connects sections that otherwise were not connected before when you walk there because you're constantly driving or not paying attention. So what you're saying really resonated. One of the parts of your chapter, you talk about, quote, getting lost on your fieldwork walks, uh, whether it was in Sri Lanka or India or Northern Ireland. Can you tell us a little bit about how like getting lost in some ways informs not just kind of your knowledge of the area, but maybe your broader research? Yeah, I mean, so a lot of this is because at least, you know, back in the day before I had kids and life commitments, like I had time and I'd go to places and then I'd kind of sit around and I'd get bored and then I'd just kind of grab my guidebook, basically. This was a mostly, though more recently not, in the in the pre-smartphone era. So I just kind of set off and like have a vague idea where I was going and I'd have a map usually that would at least provide some orientation. But I don't really have anywhere particular that I wanted to go. So I would just kind of like aimlessly wander. And usually I wouldn't get like really, really lost, um, though occasionally I would. But it was, I mean, for the reasons you're talking about, it was a, it, it's always been a nice way both to kind of occupy time, but also I'd often stumble across stuff that was interesting, even if in just a, you know, a fairly niche way, like, oh, that's the house where such and such happened, or what an interesting piece of graffiti, or wow, like, so this is how the checkpoints in this part of the city are set up. But that's different than in the tourist part of town where the checkpoints either don't exist or like, you know, more friendly looking. Um, and so it's just kind of these little pieces of texture I always found really rewarding and interesting. And so that it's not always getting lost per se, but just kind of not having a, a set destination. I, I've always enjoyed. Did that ever change kind of how you framed any of your research questions or how you perceive some of the issues that you came to these areas to study in the first place? Yeah, I mean, I guess in terms of kind of research questions per se, like at the at the broadest level, no, right? I mean, we're talking about Paul wandering around for a couple hours, not necessarily life-changing stuff. I would say in Kashmir, it actually had this nice, not nice, but this kind of useful effect where I saw kind of inequalities in the political geography, where you would go from areas that were like very poor or seemingly very poor, not very well maintained, to areas that were very kind of sheesh, uh, you know, chic, uh, areas that had big mansions behind, but set back very far from the road with big, you know, walls and try to figure out like, well, who are these people, right? What are what do these neighborhoods represent? How are they linked into issues like political party patronage or links to the Indian state or kind of the emergence of new forms of political economy, you know, like tourist trade or agriculture, people linked to the government bureaucracy. And so try to kind of, in a sense, they became kind of standards or representations for a broader set of class relations, relations with state power, and other kind of big like social science variables that you could actually see manifested in real life. Interesting. So I want to build on something that Wendy brought up before, which is kind of what you do the second that you step off the plane when you're in a new area. So, you know, for you, you talk about kind of, you know, getting out on the ground and walking around. What are some other first steps that either you feel like you've taken that have been beneficial when you do field work or things you would suggest to new graduate students or young scholars stepping out of the plane or stepping out of the car or whatever else form of transportation they're using to get there for the first time? Yeah, I mean, this is, I think this is a really it varies a lot by personality. So I'm not like a, you know, happy go lucky, just show up and see what happens kind of person. Uh, so I always have like printouts, I've got a folder uh, that always comes with me where I've got, you know, some maps, I've got some contact information, I've got like backups of, you know, printouts, my passport, um, and kind of like an initial couple of day 
aspirational agenda. Like these are the things I'd like to be able to do the first couple of days I'm somewhere. Uh, some of it involves just getting oriented, right? So this is where it's like, I just wander around for a while. But ahead of time, I often try to like kind of round up, not necessarily like contacts in the research sense, but like friends of friends. Do I know anybody who knows somebody in, you know, who's in Bangkok right now or in Colombo or, I mean, Delhi, you know, I know a bunch of people there, but like even still, it's like, is there anyone interesting floating around town who who maybe I haven't met before? And so I find that's really nice to get over like the initial jet lag, also some of the initial kind of inertia and sleepiness. It's like, oh, I have somewhere I need to be. So I can't sleep all day or I can't just sit around like watching insane Indian satellite TV news um, as you know, educational as that is. So I like to have stuff that I need to do because it gets me out. And I also like to have some kind of like some kind of social engagement, if possible, that is kind of mixed in with that. So like some work stuff, then like coffee with a friend, then maybe if there's something interesting to go see and do. So I, I don't know, I like, to, I like to be a little bit scheduled the first few days, just to kind of get me going. And from there, you know, then just see where things go. I mean, I think that makes sense, whether it's for snowball interviewing or otherwise. I think we all know that oftentimes the most valuable periods of your field research are near the end when you know, your connections are at the best, your language feels the smoothest, uh, you feel like you understand the types of things you're trying to ask or trying to learn. But uh, yeah, the beginning part, which again, can be some of the most valuable as we're talking about with, with Wendy and Chrissy about when you're learning an area, um, still sometimes you're right. If you don't think about that conscientiously, maybe sometimes you can drift into not doing even these benefits but non-instrumental things. A question I have related to that comes in the penultimate chapter of the book where we ask all the various contributors to kind of give some more advice as if they were having office hours with graduate students about field research. And you say two things in particular. You say, number one, don't only associate with expats. And number two, learn how to cold call. Could you elaborate on those and tell us why you think those are important uh, skills to have or steps to follow for field work? I, I forgot I'd said this, but I, I continue to stand on <laughs> Okay. So I think it can be easy, especially if you're not at a place for a really long period of time. So some of the field work I've done is like a couple of weeks or a month rather than like, you know, two years. And it can be easy to be like, oh, so-and-so is a friend of a friend who's a grad student at Berkeley. And like, you know, he knows somebody who's at USAID and they're going out for drinks, you know, wherever, right? Like, I mean, this is kind of very classic stereotypical expat stuff. And like, that's fine. I, I don't object to it. And I've, you know, made plenty of friends with other foreigners. But I think it creates this very artificial bubble in which the particular worldviews and information flows and prejudices and whatever of a particular class of people just kind of like create a bubble. It, and that's not what you're there to do, right? Like you're not there to talk. I mean, maybe you are if that's your research project. But for most people, you're not there to talk to people like you, right? And so getting a better understanding of Indian politics means like, talking to Indians involved or knowledgeable about Indian politics. So I, you know, I'm not saying that most people would fall into that trap, but I have seen sometimes a tendency toward kind of birds of a feather flocking together a little bit. So it's not to say like, don't be friends with those people or don't, don't interact with them. But I, I think you're going to learn a lot more, a lot more quickly from kind of actually getting out and about and kind of interacting with people who are quite different than you and at least along some dimensions. Cold calling, like I'm a huge introvert, you know, Peter and I went to grad school together. So he knows that like, you know, like I'm not out clubbing and handing out business cards and whatever. Like, Paul, you were the social center of our program. I know, I know. And that's the great irony, right, Peter? Um, <laughs> we're totally joking. I, so for me, it was really hard to just pick up the, a phone and be like, hey, this is, I'm so-and-so and I want to talk to you for these reasons. And it was like a struggle or versions of that, like showed up at someone's office or at an archive or something. Um, so I had to actually train myself to do that, which was something I'd you know, never really done before or prepared for it anyway before I actually arrived there. So that was one of these like, ah, if I'd known about this before I showed up here, I could have at least maybe done a better job of it if, if I'd thought about it or, or gotten more... Um, more practice or, or more preparation. I agree that I get the same pit in my stomach when I try to call someone uh, out of the blue. But, um, you know, I agree with you that, uh, you know, as long as you're doing it in a respectful way and you've done your research on who you're trying to contact and why and whatnot, I generally find people to be quite warm if you're warm and prepared as well and not wasting their time or asking them things that you should be able to find out on your own in the first place. Thanks so much for joining us, Paul. Now we bring back in Christina and Wendy to have a broader discussion about local knowledge and fieldwork. Welcome back, Christina and Wendy. Hi there, Peter. Good to be here. All of you guys stress the importance of local knowledge in your chapters, and it comes through in your really rich publications. The question I have is, to what extent does the current landscape make the gaining of such local knowledge more difficult, especially amidst the COVID-19 pandemic or, again, broader pressures to work more quickly? Christina, I'd love to hear from you first on that question. Well, I mean, you know, being in New York, uh, a place that was once an epicenter, I think it's really challenging, I'm sure, for a lot of 
not just graduate students, but people who are conducting field research because of social distancing, uh, because people have oftentimes other concerns than, you know, possibly filling out a survey or speaking to a researcher, um, especially since people are, you know, in, in New York City, some people are quite desperate thinking about uh, money and rent and evictions. And that's just in, in major urban areas. But then you also have to think about people who are in, you know, some of the states where the coronavirus uh, has really taken hold uh, and they're dealing with a much more tragic sort of survival of life. I mean, they're surrounded by so many people who are either ill or dying, and that will most likely make collecting research for a lot of academics quite difficult, um, just because the priorities of so many folks in America um, are, are not about helping with the production of knowledge. And that's not a judgment call. Um, it's just the reality of where people are. They're balancing and juggling quite a few pretty severe circumstances. And then I think for some people, they've had to really change how they're thinking about their various research projects and the questions and how they're asking the questions, because we know that uh, how we look at race, how we look at class, how we look at geographic locale, uh, how we're looking at age has, has really highlighted some, some really persistent inequities that have always existed. Uh, but we're in a moment where I think some researchers may have been fine either ignoring them or making them secondary or tertiary factors. But now, now more than ever, they realize that they have to address some of these variables and demographics pretty head on. Uh, and, and they need to do so. Some of them are going to have to do so and build their own foundation pretty quickly. I mean, their theories of race and ethnicity and gender uh, and region, uh, and, and some scholars might not have that foundation. And so they're going to have to play catch up in some ways due to COVID. Yeah, and I've spin that in a positive way. I mean, you could see this kind of period as a bit of a pause that allows people to, as you say, maybe reassess uh, their thinking and challenge kind of their old ways of doing things or approaching these problems and, you know, learning and listening in ways maybe they haven't before. Wendy, to ask you a question building on that, to what extent do you think people can gain local knowledge without physical presence? Because one of the key challenges, obviously, is going to be the ability to actually physically travel somewhere, not only just for, you know, ethical reasons, but also monetary reasons or otherwise, people might have a difficult time traveling to some of these parts of the world or even their own country in the near future. So to what extent do you think you can gain local knowledge without physically being in a place? I think you can. So I think in the kinds of dilemmas and challenges that Chrissy just laid out are really severe with other aspects of the pandemic and the health issues and safety issues, the economic issues, family pressures, people in the academy and beyond the academy who are just struggling to get by. These are really enormous challenges presented by the pandemic. I think the question of acquiring local knowledge without physical travel is one of the easier aspects to get to. And here I think there are so many ways to get to know a region, a people, a community without being there. And a key one is reading what those people themselves write in every possible medium, whether it's from social media posts to documents, memoirs, fiction, every aspect of ways that people capture their worlds in writing. And I think here it's important for us as scholars to think about writing that comes from different areas that we might study as both primary sources and also appreciating the secondary sources that scholars of that region produce. They're not just documents for us to analyze as raw material, but that we can really learn from the knowledge production and the analysis and the interpretation of people from the region as well. And there are other mediums as well, of course, music, film, art, literature. So I can say for my own self, for the past eight years or so, I've been doing interviews with displaced Syrians, predominantly in the Middle East and Europe. And for sure, the ability to sit down with someone, look them face to face, be in the same room and enjoy a, a setting of some kind of comfort and trust and hear someone's story directly is invaluable and there's no substitute for it. But in these months in which I haven't been able to travel, I've been trying to dive deeper into the kinds of self-expression that Syrians are producing for themselves, not simply in interview settings. And whether that is memoirs or films or creative writing, I, in some ways, I'm glad that I've had to stop and engage more deeply with these works that Syrians are producing for themselves, by themselves, and, and do that rather than going into a setting of an interview in which I present my own agenda and my own questions. It's put me in a different position, but I'm learning just as much from it than I, I have from my own interviews. 
I mean, I think that's well said, and it, it makes me think back to a conversation. I don't know if you remember, Wendy, but uh, a number of years ago, one of the first times I met you, I sought you out because I really respected your work, and I think I was maybe four or so years into studying Arabic at that point. And you know, as you know very well, I was like, oh, I feel like I've got some of this grammar down, I can speak decently well, but man, there's just so much vocab just going forever. And talking to you about the importance of you know really nailing down and, and learning the language for trying to understand a place and a people, and that's something to me certainly that one can work very hard on during a period like this, which will pay off certainly in the long run. But uh, you were very inspirational. We had that talk. So I appreciate that. You're very kind. You've you've done well for yourself, Peter. Uh, I try, but I I think my Arabic is still not nearly at your level, but we can maybe try that on another podcast. Uh, In any case, Paul, I wanted to turn to you. Are there other things that you think you can do to gain local knowledge beyond what we've discussed here, either in general or certainly amidst the difficulty of travel? Because, you know, beyond COVID-19, you know, we were both fortunate to be at a a program where, you know, there was decently regular funding available for grad students who wanted to do exploratory fieldwork projects, et cetera. But not everyone has that privilege, right? Some people don't have the money to do so, uh, et cetera. So other suggestive or or, you know, ways that in which we can gain local knowledge that haven't been already noted here. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it is a real dilemma. And I think it's one I, you know, I really feel for grad students and junior faculty right now, because it's, it's just, it's, it's, you know, we can give advice, but it, it's easier said than done. I mean, that being said, I think depending on the context, reading the news, using social media, kind of like, really invested in just reading things like new, news weekly magazines, or, you know, kind of going beyond like, the headlines and kind of having targeted areas of focus where you're really like, all right, so like, what's in the paper today about X topic? What's in the paper tomorrow about X topic? And so really kind of like in a very disciplined and focused way, try to figure out like what's going on on particular issues on the ground. I think it's now much easier in an era in which, you know, you could read the newspapers online, you can watch the TV online, you can listen to radio programs, you can use Twitter or, you know, local websites. So I think there are, there are opportunities that are, are quite unique. I mean, even compared to, you know, 12, 15 years ago, when I started doing field work, it's like there's this whole ecosystem, you know, digital ecosystem in South Asia that makes it much easier, I think, to get up to speed with a couple big caveats. One is that it's often useful to talk to other people who, who already know something about the context to get some guidance, because like, you know, as they say, Twitter is not really real life, right? And TV news channels are not real life. And so a certain amount of kind of like guided discrimination and how you, where you go for information and how to process it, I think remains really essential, you know, because you can get this informational overload. And a lot of that information is, is basically kind of garbage. Something I've found myself doing, you know, I was supposed to go to India in the, in the fall, which is extremely not happening now, but I'm trying to be a little more creative. So like, I've found some interesting data sets and government reports and just things that like I... I was more motivated to go hunting for than if I was like, oh, I'll be there in the fall and I'll ask around and see if anybody knows something about this. Now it's like, well, I'm not going there, so I need to figure this out. And so I've you know, found some interesting pieces of data that otherwise I really would have just either put off or never really got it around to at all. And so there, there might be some, depending on the context, some creative kind of forms of data collection and kind of engagement that, that maybe offer some, not necessarily replacement for fieldwork, but at least some alternative kind of value that can be brought to bear. Okay. Now, a question I want to put to each of you is about another thing related to local knowledge, which is partnering with local scholars or local individuals for your research, whether it's co-authoring with someone, having someone who's a local enumerator, in some cases, if you're being more like a journalist, having a fixer, and some of the you know positives, but also negatives or ethical challenges with doing this and seeing how this is kind of evolving in our field where people are talking more and more about you know making sure that your projects are not, of course, just benefiting yourself or the broader scholarly community, but also the local communities in which you, you know engage with. And then also the individuals that you work with, making sure that they're getting credit or otherwise for the projects they're working on. I would love to hear from each of you about the extent to which you have partnered with anyone in the places that you consider to be the field or where you've done your research and what your thoughts are on that experience or where you feel like that's going more broadly. Uh, and Paul, let's start with you. Sure. So, I mean, the an interesting thing about the kind of South Asia conflict, international relations kind of little subworld is that it has a pretty heavy representation of people either based in or kind of originally of origin from South Asia. And so it's even now, you know, maybe particularly now because people are more accepting of digital tools like, you know, Zoom and other kind of formats like that. And, and because English is, is a shared kind of elite link language, um, there are a lot of ways to have workshops, to have, you know, edited volumes, to have co-authorships that span across borders and that can reach back into South Asia or deal with scholars of South Asian origin. So for instance, I was just part of, um, you know, there's been, there's been a long running India security studies workshop that 
physically in the past was held at the University of Pennsylvania. But this year, you know, we can't do that. So we did a Zoom thing where, you know, for three mornings over the course of two weeks, people were basically all able to come in from the US, from Europe, from Singapore, from India, to see work being presented and kind of give feedback on it. And so that's been a recurring even when in person, right, in, in Philadelphia, the organizers were able to get money to bring in people from Asia as well. So that's been kind of over the last decade a touchstone for kind of keeping the Indian part and the South Asian part of the discipline kind of connected to what we do in the United States. And so in that sense, it's actually been, in some ways, the rise of COVID has made that easier because now it's not like, oh, well, let us know when you're in town or we'll, we'll hold a seminar. That's not going to happen. So now it's like, all right, like, let's see if we can organize some kind of virtual you know, events or some kind of, you know, written collaboration that is is more thinkable now because there are no other real alternatives. Yeah. I mean, I think that sounds really interesting. I mean, the Middle East is a little bit different, but I think some similarities there. Wendy, you've obviously done a great deal of research across the Middle East and, you know, you've written a couple of great books engaging deeply with uh, Palestinian and Syrian refugees alongside, I think in many ways, and complementing your quote unquote, and I hesitate to use this term because I consider those scholarly works, but some might say kind of complementing your kind of more scholarly or, or boring theory, empirics, whatever approach that we all use. Um, but yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts more broadly on kind of partnering with local scholars or, or otherwise and how that's impacted your work? Yeah. So I've actually have never used a local fixer or local RA. Instead, I've used the method that you and Paul described so well as the dreaded cold calling, which I myself, I got a pit in my stomach just listening to the you of you, two of you talk about the pits in your stomach. You know, I began my work on Syria, for example, with a couple of contacts of local journalists who'd done work on Syria and Syrian refugees. And they gave me a contact of one person they knew. And luckily, it was able to snowball. And I was able to go from person to person without having to kind of hire a, a local to make those arrangements for me, which in some ways saved me from what you described, Peter, as the, the kind of the difficult ethical questions about having someone basically do that work for you and play a junior role and play a role of, of supplementing or aiding your own work, but not necessarily getting credit as a producer of the work, instead playing an assisting role, which I think opens, as you suggested, a whole host of questions about who is the producer and who gets credit and who benefits from this research and who is made more invisible by playing a role as an assistant. And I know that there are various folks in our disciplines having all sorts of terrific conversations about this. So I haven't had uh, someone as a, a local fixer or RA or someone who would make appointments or, or serve as an interpreter and do that type of work for me. The one time I had had a local scholar as a co-author was actually a wonderful experience and quite different. And that was Dr. Ali Jarbawi, who is a professor at Birzeit University. And I arrived at Birzeit in early 2000 as essentially a study abroad student, or I finished undergrad at that point, but was studying at Birzeit, enrolled as an international, as a foreign student. And Dr. Jarbawi was my professor. So I took class with him and was so inspired by his knowledge of local politics that I then began interning at a human rights organization where he was the director and got to know him well and sort of built a relationship with him over the years. And I remember once he called me in and he said, Perlman, I have an idea for an article. And here is the argument and here's what I want to say. And why don't you go write it? And I said, yes, Dr. Jarbawi, basically anything for you. So he was very much the senior writer. I actually had, had not even begun my PhD studies at that point. So he was the senior writer and I was the young junior person following his lead and following his direction. But I learned so, so, so much from it. It was for me an opportunity to sit at the feet of a local scholar who both knew Palestinian politics in and out from the inside, but was also very accomplished and insightful in his own analysis as a political scientist. So that is an experience I would recommend to those just beginning, where if we often think of the power dynamic as, as the Western researcher who shows up in a, a foreign place and is able to use a, a certain power of, of money and time to benefit from the local knowledge, it was rendered in a lesser powerful situation. There are also opportunities when we can learn from someone who's more experienced in local and get a lot from that opportunity. Couldn't agree more. Christina, turning to you, 
just wanted to hear your thoughts on, again, whether it's partnering with people in the local community or otherwise interacting with them. I mean, I know it's not the same thing, but I was really struck by the story in your chapter where you talked about people in the local community, you know, giving you a coupon when they were returning your survey. And again, I think showing in many ways the the deep connection you had with people in the community that you were engaging with. But, you know, your thoughts on this and or where you feel like the field is going on this issue. Yeah, I think Wendy said it best. You know, as researchers, we always have to remember that it's a privilege for us to be invited into people's communities to ask these questions, not just to further our our own research and scholarship and obviously put this information out into the world. But we do know that, I mean, our discipline is somewhat navel-gazing at times, and so not everyone uses their research to then contribute back to the community that has served them. So I I do like this idea of viewing whomever, community members, community partners, organizations, as as partners in this research to make sure that what we write and what we publish does come back to them in some way so they know uh, that we've not just used them for their knowledge, um, but that we're able to contribute to their life in some way if if they choose to, to have us sort of be a continuing partner. So as I think about my research, I mean, I've, I've gone a little more archival in some of my latest research, um, but in collaborating with junior scholars, I think it's really important for them, two junior scholars that I'm working with right now, uh, are so incredibly talented when it comes to quantitative methods, because both of them are coming from top institutions, but also serving as a mentor to help remind them that, you know, they can think creatively beyond using STATA and R, uh, and that quantitative research is useful, sure, but it needs to be bolstered by some sort of qualitative understanding of the people that we're looking at and the communities that we're looking at. And I, I think that a more holistic approach to our discipline and how we ask questions, we can't be afraid to actually talk to the people. I mean, the butterflies in the stomach, I think, are good. Uh, I think it says that we know we're doing something important. We know we're doing something that's possibly out of our comfort zone. Uh, we know that we might make some mistakes, sure. But I think that there's a recognition when you have those little butterflies in the stomach, when you are trying to work on sort of having this cult- cross-cultural competence uh, that makes us take a pause and recognize that there are gaps in our knowledge and that just because we're the ones who are either gaining the PhD or already have the PhD, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're the smartest in the room. And so I think, you know, just to remind people that the collaborations with communities can be a good thing because there's so many ways that we can look at people who have various different wells of knowledge and they don't always come from institutions. I think that's exactly right. And looking at, you know, each of the three of you and certainly looking a little at myself and Aura as well, you know, where we are, I think, collectively in understanding the regions or the people that we engage with versus where we were as grad students, I think is is probably night and day for most of us. And I think it's because exactly as you're saying, you're learning all the time. It's not just for an individual article or book. It's it's a lifetime pursuit, as I think Wendy brought up before. So uh, appreciate that and really agree with your words there. Well, thank you so much, Christina, Wendy, and Paul, for joining us today to discuss your fascinating fieldwork. Thank you. No problem. Great to have you guys on. Uh, For more great stories and insights on fieldwork from our guests today and over 40 other scholars, check out our book with the same name as the podcast. As always, we'd like to thank Boston College, Clark University, MIT, and Columbia University Press for their support for the book and for this podcast. See you next time on Stories from the Field. (laughs) 